Hebrews chapter 8, I especially draw your attention to the verse 2. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. You will remember that whenever the Lord Jesus Christ died, the veil of the temple was rent in two. And it was rent from the top to the bottom because it was divinely rent by the hand of God. Not only did the veil rend, there was an earthquake and the rocks rent and there were some of the graves that were opened and there were some of the bodies even of the saints that slept which arose. So there were tokens, a great shaking in token form that something powerful had happened that something new was taking place coming into place that there was a new age but after Christ's resurrection the priests sewed up the veil again they tried to carry on the temple worship as if nothing had happened as if there was nothing new, as if there was no great change at all. They sewed up the veil and the worship in the temple below continued. The shadows and types carried on. And you have to remember then the difficulty that the early Christians found themselves in. And I'm talking about from the time of Christ's resurrection until the temple was totally destroyed and all of that worship was done away with in AD 70, for that period of about 40 years, the Christian church was in a peculiar situation. They still had the temple worship the Jews and all of that going on, and it was hard to give up. And they didn't know, some of them, whether it was right to give it up, or should they give it up. Or what weight should they still put upon this ceremony? And there were difficulties. And this epistle proves that. The Hebrews, maybe they were cast out of the synagogue. Maybe they were ostracized from the Judaism by their faith in Christ. And there were strong temptations to go back. Back to the visible. Back to that which you could see. After all, they knew it was in the Old Testament. They knew God established it. They knew God set up the tabernacle. They knew the offerings were all of God. And they were continuing. And how could they know for sure that they had ceased? And so they had these difficulties in this early generation. And as well as that, the Gentiles who were converted, they could easily be persuaded that God established the tabernacle and God established this worship and God has allowed this worship to continue and therefore we should be circumcised and we should go back and participate in this and recognize what God has done and carry it on. And what proof is there that God has done away with it? And so there are even difficulties for Gentile Christians under pressure from Judaizers. Now most commentators say that this was an epistle written to the Hebrews. That's what the title says. But the title's not inspired. And there are other commentators that say that it was written to Gentiles. As well as to Hebrew Christians. Whatever may be the truth of all of that. 
you can see that they had some difficulty in how to participate in the old and how much of the old to look to and to lean upon. And that's what this epistle is dealing with. And so the Apostle Paul is persuading them that all of that is belonging to something that is vanishing away, that is becoming obsolete, and that something new has been brought in by Jesus Christ. And of course, to convince them of that and persuade them of that, he has to use the Scriptures. And he does use the Scriptures, which is why he's always using the Old Testament and bringing in Scripture texts in, in practically every chapter, every paragraph. And he does it in this short chapter as well. One of the books of the Bible that he particularly uses a lot is the Psalms. Because it was the Psalms that the Hebrews and the early Christians especially knew. They knew the Psalms more than any book. Because they sung the Psalms. They didn't all have a Bible like you and I do and take it home and read it. They only got what they heard in the, in the synagogue in the Christian assembly. They heard the scriptures read through a year. But the Psalms, they sung them all the time. They knew them inside out. They, they were part of their memory. And so being familiar with the Psalms, that is the reason why the authors of the epistles in the New Testament most often quote from them. And the Psalter is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Because, as I say, they were sung. Even whenever the Christians were cast out of the synagogues, they just established Christian assemblies and they carried on synagogue worship, singing the Psalms. Carrying out the same worship through their mediator, their Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And this chapter begins with Psalm 110 yet again. He's always bringing in Psalm 110. It's his main text. It's the psalm that he's expounding, that he's proclaiming. And we saw that whenever we looked at chapter 7 and even the chapters previous to that. And so he quotes it again in, in verse 1. But then he also quotes from Exodus in verse 5. And then he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31 in verse 8. And that quotation is very long. It runs for five verses right down the chapter. In fact, it's the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. Because he's, he's bringing to them the proof that Jesus Christ has brought in the New Covenant. That the Old One is becoming obsolete and is ready to vanish away. And in fact, it did vanish away in A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. And the chapter is divided into two. The first part of the chapter, verses 1 to 6, tell us that our Saviour has a better ministry. Christ has a better ministry. And then verses 7 to 13 tell us that Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. Not just a new ministry, not just a new covenant, but better a better ministry in Jesus Christ and a better covenant that Jesus Christ mediates on behalf of his people. And it is in this first part that we want to focus tonight, verses 1 to 6. Christ has a better ministry. And the key word in the paragraph is minister, or similar words. You have it there in verse 2. 
that Christ is a minister. That's what he is now. He's a minister of the true sanctuary. And verse 5, we read about the priests on the earth who are still continuing their priestly ministry at this time, verse 5, who serve unto the example and the shadow of heavenly things. And then in verse 6, but now hath he, that is Christ, obtained a more excellent ministry. So here we're talking about the ministry of Christ on the one hand, an excellent ministry, a better ministry, a ministry in the true sanctuary, and comparing that with the earthly ministry, with the Levitical service carried on in the earthly sanctuary. Now before we begin to speak about this priestly ministry, remember what Paul is doing here. He's showing Christ is greater than Aaron. And he's showing that his ministry is greater than the Levitical ministry. And that his ministry is after the order of Melchizedek. And in verse 1, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the sum. And that's the important word. In fact, I think it's the first word in the Greek of the chapter. The sum of the things which we have spoken is this. So he's giving us the summary of what he's been saying in the epistle. And the summary is just the summary of Psalm 110 itself. And by sum, Paul means, and not just the summing up, but the main point, the main thing. He's reminding us of the main thing, yet again. And preachers are always doing that, aren't they? You may say, well, the preacher, he recaps and he repeats and he seems to have one thought in his mind and he, he comes at it from one angle and he comes at it from another angle and he illustrates it and he proves it by so many points. But he really has just one main thing in mind that he wishes to establish. And that's what Paul is. He's a preacher with a main point, with one thing, the main thing. And this is the main thing of the epistle to the Hebrews. We can say it's the main thing in the Christian church. It's the main thing to Christian faith. It's a summary of the, the vital, the fundamental. And Paul states it yet again. As briefly as he can. This is the main point. Verse 1. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's the main point. Now, have you got that in your life? Is this the main point in your faith? Is this the main point when you come to God's house? Is this the main point whenever you get down on your knees before God to pray? Is this the main point whenever you face all the trials and when the devil attacks you? This is the main thing that your heart has gripped. The thing that it needs to grip. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of God in the heavens. That's the main point. And that high priest, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Underline that word such. Such an high priest. He may be referring to the past. Chapters, 
For example, he may be referring to verse 26 of chapter 7. Such an high priest became us, who's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, and who doesn't need, need to daily offer sacrifices, but he's just offered one sacrifice for our sins he has offered up himself. That's the high priest we have. Such a high priest. One sacrifice, once for all, once forever, and he doesn't have to repeat it and do it again. He's, he's harmless, he's sinless, he's perfect, he's complete, and he's in the glory. Such an high priest. So he may be referring to the past. He also is referring to what he's about to say in this chapter. Ahead of us. Such a high priest. And I'm going to remind you again what I mean by that. He's a minister. In the true sanctuary. That's the priest we have. So we need to capture this truth. We need to take hold of this truth. So the main point, the main thing is we have such a high priest. But not just who he is and what he is, especially where he is. Because he emphasizes that is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And of course he's quoted here Psalm 110 verse 4 with his own paraphrase of the quotation. Changing the words about uh, to emphasize certain points and things. So he's telling us where he is. And of course, it's in the past tense, isn't it? We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That was 2,000 years ago. And you remember the psalm that's quoted? The Lord says to him, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That, that was all fulfilled 2,000 years ago when the Lord ascended. So it's past now. It's history now. It's not prophecy anymore. It's been fulfilled and completed. He said, and he's been sitting there 2,000 years. And he's still sitting there. And he continues to sit there until the time when all his enemies have been made his footstool and he comes back again. So we're talking about something that is history. That has been fulfilled. So he's changing the sense of the psalm, the timing of the psalm, and he's saying he is set on the right hand. God. And he's still there. In other words, nothing has changed at the time that he wrote this epistle. Hundreds of years have passed. It's still true, brethren and sisters. This is still true. He is still set at the right hand of God. And we have to remember this. This is the main thing. The main thing is now he's set. The main thing is now he's ministering on our behalf He's mediating the new covenant now on our behalf in the sanctuary above. The main thing is that now he is saving souls. That now he is forgiving sins. That now he is working in hearts and causing people to know him. That's the main thing. The new covenant that he mediates now. And as I say, he's been sitting there 2,000 years. And you say, well, that's a long sit. 
Indeed it is. It's a very long sit. And it is of necessity that it is a long sit. Because you see, there are so many to be saved. There are multitudes to be saved. And to be saved takes a long time. It takes generations. There are thousands and millions who are perhaps yet even unborn who have to be brought in. There is a large and glorious church that he is mediating the new covenant on behalf of and they're not even born yet. And so he has to sit and continue to mediate until they're all brought in. And that takes time. You see, he's building a church a church of converted Jews and converted Gentiles. It's so glorious a church. It can't be built in a day. You know whenever God built the creation. He built it in six days didn't he? Six days to create the world. But it takes thousands of years to build a church. This word set. It means of course to sit down. Who is sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Just as it means that in Psalm 110. Sit thou at my right hand. He's a minister who sits. That No priest ever did that in the temple or in the tabernacle. They were standing. Standing all the time. Standing offering the same gifts. There never was a seat. The only seat was in the most holy place. And no priest dare sit on it. Standing. Always standing. But Jesus is set down. He is seated in his ministry, not because it's a ministry of idleness and indifference, because it is a ministry of power. It's a ministry of reigning, just like a king sits and reigns. We know that Eli sat, but you know why he sat? He sat because he was old and fat. But Jesus doesn't sit because he's old and fat. He sits because he lives on the power of an endless life. And he's all power in heaven and on earth given unto him. And he sits reigning as the king priest. He's finished his earthly service. And now he sits in the power of his heavenly ministry. In glory. And all power is given unto him. So he sits. That tells us his humiliation is past. There's nobody knocking him off his seat. There's nobody coming to crucify him afresh. There's nobody going to give him any trouble He's sitting and he's fulfilling all the decrees of Almighty God by that omnipotent power. He sits as a king. The Lord at thy right hand. And so the thought is, especially it is, his involvement in the sovereign rule over all things in order to bring in his church. Over the thousands of years. However long human history is. To that completion. He's reigning now. We're not waiting for him to get a throne. We're not expecting that he's going to be on a lesser throne. He's on the highest throne imaginable. A throne. As Paul says here. At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. You see how Paul puts it? He doesn't just say at God's right hand. That's what the psalm says. Sit there at my right hand. He doesn't just say that. He says he sits at the right hand of the throne. Of the majesty 
in the heavens. It's at God's right hand. But he doesn't just say God. He wants us to feel deeply the awe of the place where Jesus ministers. You know the way, you know, we sometimes we just use God's name and we don't really lose our breath when we say it. We don't really stand in awe when we say it. We nearly take his name in vain because we don't have that sense of awe at his name. Paul wants to deal with that. And he's saying, he's set at the right hand of the majesty. The greatest. The highest. The most excellent. At the throne of the God of majesty. And so he's telling us of the excellent greatness of the God at whose right hand he is. The thought of God ought to take our breath away, brethren and sisters. Uh, this word majesty is the word that they so often sing in the Psalms. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His majesty is unsearchable. That majesty, that unsearchable majesty. That majesty that is excellent. His excellent majesty. That, that's where he is. He's in the majestic presence. He's in the reality. He's not below in the shadows. And we're trying to picture something of the majesty of God. He's feeling it. He's experiencing it. He's living in the power and awe of it. And he's there as, as a minister. Even there, even in glory. He's still the righteous servant of Jehovah carrying out the overseeing of the universe as the God-man ministering in glory. Have you ever thought about him still as a minister on our behalf? Still mediating on our behalf? Still offering our prayers and our worship to the Father for us? Making us accepted before the Father interceding for us unburying his heart for us before his Father in the place of awesome power a minister of the true sanctuary righteous servant of whom God speaks behold my servant whom I uphold my servant who, who brings Israel my people to glory who gathers them in but well, here he is. He's doing it now. We're not waiting for him to come to Jerusalem to do it. He's doing it now. He's fulfilling it now. The new covenant has come in now. The Old Testament has been fulfilled now. He's bringing in the Gentiles now. In his heavenly ministry. In his mediation of the new covenant. In the heavenly glory. He's doing it now. And this is what the apostle wants to get into the mind of the Christian. Why do you have to go to the, to the temple? Why are you worrying about seeing Aaron and people dressed up like Aaron and going back to the, the beggarly elements and back to the shadows? We have the reality in Christ. And so this is a far more excellent ministry. What does it say there? He has obtained a more excellent ministry. Paul is focusing on the place 
And the contrast between the place of the earthly ministers and the place of the heavenly ministry above. Verse 2, what is he? He's a minister of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. You see that tabernacle in Exodus? It's all described there. All the furniture is described twice in actual fact. Very important tabernacle. And its erection is described. But it was men who put it up. It was men who made it. It was men who fashioned all the curtains and all the, all the instruments and all the tunes and all the bits and pieces and they erected it together. It was man-made. But the tabernacle in which Christ ministers is not man-made. It's God-made. It's the tabernacle which the Lord has pitched, whose builder and maker is God, which hath foundations that have never been laid by human hand, he ministers in the sanctuary in glory, in heaven itself. The true, is not what the apostle calls it, the true tabernacle. Not because the earthly tabernacle was false. It wasn't false. But it wasn't real. It wasn't the real thing. It wasn't the true thing. It was just a picture of the true thing. That's all. So the Levitical priests... Those are the boys that are just ministering in the picture, in the image, in the shadows. But Christ is in the substance, in the reality, above. So he's comparing the tabernacle in the wilderness with the tabernacle, the heavenly glory, the heavenly sanctuary. The heavenly sanctuary is the real. The earthly tabernacle is the shadow. And that's a big difference. Big difference. So Aaron's earthly priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, they're just the boys who worked in the shadows. That's all. And you know something about shadows? They pass away. Eventually. Whenever the sun fully comes, as it were, and shines in all its glory, and Christ is all the light of the world, and the shadows have gone away. And this word shadow... It's not an imagined word that the preacher comes up with. It's in the text. You have it there in verse 5. That the Levitical priesthood, they serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. That's all they're ministering in. They're ministering in the shadow. They're ministering in the types. The word example there is the the patterns, the signs, the, the representations. They serve something that is example. They serve something that is just representative. They serve something that is just given as a, you know, example one, example two, example three, you know, showing forth something else. They serve with the the signs and the shadows. The examples and the shadows. Those are the words the apostle uses himself. They're not the true, you see. Why would you go back to the shadows? Why are you going back to the signs? Why are you going back to the service with merely the examples of the reality? What good is that to your soul? Why would you leave the great reality of Jesus Christ and a priest in glory and want to go back to that? It's folly, it's foolishness. So this is what the apostle is saying here. We have a high priest over the house of God, as he says in chapter 10. 
And Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are only the figures of the true, but into heaven itself. And that's another word he uses. It's just the figures, it's just the pictures. Examples, shadows, figures. That's all Exodus says. And he proves it from the Old Testament itself. Because he quotes from Exodus in verse 5. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. So Moses was to make something and he was given a pattern. And you read about that in Exodus 25 and Exodus 26. God said, look, that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. Thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. And whenever Moses erected the tent, he checked all of that. And it says, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel made all the work, and Moses did look upon all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, even so had they done it. So they built it according to the pattern which was showed to them in the mount. In other words, all the tabernacle is, is a model that Moses is making, a model of something greater. And God explained that all to Moses. Moses knew the meaning of the tabernacle. Moses knew what the most holy place was all about and the holy place and all these instruments and all these things that were put in the tabernacle. It was all explained to Moses and it was proclaimed by the priests to the people so that they may have the faith of the gospel in the old dispensational form, in the picture book form before Christ the reality comes and the shadows then they, they flee away, you see. So Moses saw the blueprints. And all of that detail is to set forth heavenly things. True things, real things. And so the most holy place pictured God's throne room, heaven itself. And how we can't get into heaven. And how a veil separates us. And how these priests are continually ministering without, never able to sit down, the work never finished, the true veil never rent, until one Jesus, dead Jesus died, and the veil rent in two, and an entrance was made right in. Christ by his own blood has entered in once for all, as a minister of the true sanctuary, which God has pitched, and not man. And he offered himself. If he was on the earth offering offerings, he wouldn't be the priest of this new order. But because he offered a once for all sacrifice. Sit thou at my right hand. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Your once for all offering is, is all sufficient. And all perfect and complete. Now mediate the new covenant. And bring your redeemed in. By your mighty power. So that's what the apostle is saying here. Every priest standeth daily. See that word standing? Hebrews 10 verse 11. 
every day, standing, ministering, same offerings, the same sacrifices. They can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, the offering on the cross sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. And so Christ there intercedes and ministers the new covenant. And this is what the apostle is saying. So in conclusion then, Christ is glorious. He's a glorious person. He's in a glorious place. He's there on the grounds of a glorious once for all sacrifice. The sacrifice of himself. The power of his blood. He's with a glorious God. He has glorious power. He mediates a glorious new covenant. And he's bringing his people over the thousands of years of his reign, however long it takes, he's bringing them to a glorious salvation. And he's going to bring them to the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, to be with him and with his Father forever and ever, worlds without end. And so that's why sinners must believe in him and look to him alone. And that is why you, children of God, must constantly reaffirm your faith in a living Saviour at God's right hand. He has to be real to you. He has to be perpetually before you in faith. Always making use of him. Always coming to the Father through him. Always availing yourself of the power of his blood, the power of his priestly role and glory continuing to believe in him and to trust in him and to rely on him, seeing that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Yea, let us therefore come boldly onto the throne of grace that we may obtain the mercy that we need and the grace that we require in our difficult pilgrimage through this wicked, fallen world. And only Christ can save us. It's all in Jesus Christ. And when he's finished building his church, he'll come back again and receive it unto the heavenly glory in the endless new heavens and the new earth. So only Christ can save us. Only Christ can make our persons accepted to God. Only Christ can mediate for us. Only Christ can bring us the blessings of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, all of this that he quotes from Jeremiah, the new heart, the laws in their mind, the receiving the mercy to our unrighteousness and our sins and iniquities being remembered no more. It's only Christ mediates all that grace to us and him alone. There's no one else. And in our worship as a congregation, he alone makes our worship to be accepted in heaven. It's not our liturgy. It's not the way we do things. It's, it's not anything special about us. But it's our mediator who washes away all the sinfulness of our worship and purifies it. And through his person, as he mediates makes us to be accepted in the heavenly glory. You see, we go right into the glory. We're right in the presence of God. 
We're right in the, the sanctuary above in our great high priest. Why would we go back to Judaism? Why would any Jew want to go back to any of that? It's all finished in Christ. And it's folly to go back. And this is what Paul is constantly, by different means, trying to hammer home to these Hebrews. Keep looking on to Jesus. 